Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Joining me this week is pronunciation guru and token northerner Thea Lenardutsi and birthday girl this week, Thea. Oh, well, that's past. I don't want to talk about that. You don't want, you don't want to talk about it. My son, I also realise for all of these introductions, anyone who hasn't been listening since the beginning of our series is going to be so confused. Well, they should, they should be listening. They should well, go exactly, back and that's listen. that's an incentive. But, Okay, well, you're a northerner, you're a token northerner. <laughs> Northern and Italian. And you're, very, and you're very good at pronouncing uh, Italian and other Romance languages, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> you don't want to, good. You don't want to That's talk going your right on my CV. Yeah, you're good at pronouncing <laughs> Romance languages. Like yes, very good. Okay, we won't talk about your birthday. We will move on. Each week we'll be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS on big ideas or authors. Coming up on the show today, we have... Thoughts on the institution of marriage, gay and straight, faithful and adulterous. Why does it retain any force in the modern world, especially America? Marcia Zug, whose own book on mail order brides is also reviewed in this week's paper, has looked at five books on the subject and will be here to offer some theories. From one sentimental institution to another, Beatrix Potter, why did those little and stout books written by a little and stout Victorian lady become so popular? Laura Freeman, who's written our cover piece, joins us to let us know. And here comes everything else. Paul Duguid has reviewed a book that with typical American aplomb seeks to claim US ownership for the world of information and facts. Warning, this subject has got memes in it. Finally, to accompany a lovely piece on the poet sculptor Ian Hamilton Finlay and his irascible correspondence, TLS managing editor and poetry guru Robert Potts will read Gift by Hamilton Finlay, first published in the TLS in October 1960. So, Marriage is a great institution, said May West, but I'm not ready for an institution. Uh, with this quote begins Marsha Zug's examination of that stubborn, provocative and perhaps peculiarly American idea of getting hitched. It's an institution that serves as a handy prism in many ways to examine current social trends and movements, the acceptance of gay people into the mainstream, the issues of racial division, the moral force of fidelity. Marsha starts off with a Supreme Court decision of Obergefell versus Hodges, in which it was finally decided that the constitutional right of marriage may not be denied to same-sex couples. The judge in the case said, somewhat questionably, marriage is essential to our most profound hopes and aspirations. Marsha joins Thea and me now. How are you doing? How are you? Very good, thank you. So, 
Is marriage actually essential to our most profound hopes and aspirations? Because that seems like rather a large and potentially untrue claim to me. Well, I agree that um, there's a lot going on in that statement. But we certainly think marriage in America is very important. I teach family law here. And one of the themes of my class over and over again is marriage is this foundational building block of American society. Uh, We hold it up as this great aspirational idea and something that everyone really should, if they're able to, to aspire to. And we'll maybe come to this later on, but do you think that's a reasonable position to hold? Or is it actually becomes a mechanism for marginalising or in some way downplaying the the lives of people who don't follow that very traditional route? There are two problems with that. One is if you're going to put this much importance on marriage, then people have to be able to get married, right? So that was the big problem with same-sex marriage. If marriage is this wonderful institution that gives meaning to our lives, it's the foundation of our society, then to not let certain groups of people enter into that institution is highly problematic. But the second problem with it is even if you can enter into it, lots of people don't want to. And by portraying marriage in this way, there's a lot of pressure on people to get married and a lot of scepticism of those who reject marriage. And I think that's problematic. Let's talk about the the gay marriage, because you've reviewed the book Love Wins by the journalist Debbie Senziper and the successful plaintiff I mentioned, Jim Obergefell. You call it an inspiring and moving tribute to the power of marital love. What did you like about the book? Well, it made me cry. I mean, it's a beautiful love story. They clearly, um, you know, fit everything that we hold important in America about love. You know, they were together for a very long time. They completed each other. They, you know, were together in good times, bad times. He was there for him as he was dying. Um, yeah, I mean, people who don't know the story is they got married and then a month later, Jim's partner, well, husband, died. Right. Uh, they'd been together for a very, very long time. But since they're a same-sex couple, they weren't able to get married. And as the law was changing was when Jim's partner got sick, John Arthur, and they really wanted to get married, both for the symbolic purpose and also for the legal benefits that came with it. He wanted to be able to say, this is my husband legally on the death certificate to be there for, you know, medical visitation, all the laws and rights that come with marriage, they were being denied. Extraordinary, that. The rest of the the piece is in many ways a caution against sentimentality. I want to get into this because you review a book by Catherine Frank called Wedlocked, The Perils of Marriage Equality. She calls herself the turd in the punch bowl of the marriage equality movement, uh, rather memorably. What are the perils of marriage equality? Because at one level, there don't seem to be any. Well, she points out that uh, in the same-sex community, because they couldn't get married, they created, a a lot of couples created alternatives to marriage, and they were very happy. Certain people were very happy with these alternatives. And one of the things you see is that once same-sex couples are able to get married, there's a lot of questioning of these alternative arrangements. You know, civil unions, they were there as an alternative to marriage. Once same-sex couples could get married, Most states didn't see a need for civil unions anymore, but a lot of people kind of liked them. You had certain rights, but you didn't have all of the obligations. And she's pointing out that gaining the right to marry means that all of these other forms of relationships that had been very important to the same-sex community now are going to be looked at, either like civil unions disappear or going to be looked at 
highly skeptically. If you can get married, then why don't you? A marriage is how we show our highest form of commitment, right? If you're really serious, you get married. And now that's a pressure on the same-sex community as well, right? If you're in love, if you're serious, if this is the real thing, put a ring on it. And her central thesis there is that she, she's finding a parallel in African-American couples who were not just allowed, but essentially forced to marry after the Civil War. You know, the, the parallel is not perfect. Yeah, I don't get it at all, Marsha. It doesn't make any sense to me. So explain it to me a bit. She thought it was going to be stronger than it turned out to be. She really thought there was going to be a strong backlash. People would be uh, very mad at the same-sex community for gaining this right, and they would really be getting punished if they didn't conform to uh, typical marriage structures. That hasn't happened, but I think she's right that there's still going to be a lot of pressure. In the 19th century, there was a lot of uh, criminalizing of sex outside of marriage and adultery. We'll get to adultery in a minute. If you're in a long-term same-sex relationship, you're going to get the same questions about why aren't you getting married. If you're really serious, get married. And, you know, whether or not it's going to be anything more than pressure, I don't think has actually materialized and I don't think it's going to. But that was sort of, those were the parallel she was trying to draw there. And presumably that whole industry around adultery, you know, the, the, the slight cliche of the sort of the private investigator well, looking into cheating husbands or wives has that diminished because you can get divorces more easily where you don't need to prove that someone has acted badly or, or is that sort of poor behavior on a, on a partner's part still a key 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 aspect to a divorce proceeding well it depends where you are i'm in south carolina and here adultery is a major part of our divorce proceedings it can really really change the financial repercussions of divorce so i think the um private investigator business is doing quite fine here. Okay, so, I can, so if I want to be my childhood dream of being a private investigator in America, I should go to, I could head to South Carolina and there'd still be a job for me. Yeah, and you don't even have to be that good down here. Substantial <laughs> evidence works for it. So we're actually pretty uh, sympathetic to the person who's claiming their spouse cheated. And uh, as long as you have some decent evidence of that, uh, that can have a major impact on your divorce proceeding and even your child custody, potentially. Well, is, is there a sense in, in these adultery laws, in the fact that they still exist? And I know you say they're not particularly, they're not implemented particularly often, but they still exist in the background. And so the stigma persists. Is there a sense in which they exist to sort of make it easier for us to be able to subscribe to a, a more simple narrative of, of, of victim versus perpetrator, the good versus the bad. And that kind of fits into a sort of a more sim simple way of dealing with things in, in a court basis or, you know, as, as a... So it's a symbolic law. Yeah, think? it's a sort of a symbolic... It's a way of simplifying the narrative. And, and it's particularly interesting, I think, if you think about, you know, whether Trump or Clinton will get in, the, the, the outcome for marriage and for, for same-sex marriage is obviously very different. Uh, certainly, potentially. Uh, I try not to think about that. <laughs> yeah, you're going you. to Marcia, you're gonna have to at some point. <laughs> Here's what I found extraordinary about Clinton, because I, I was in America a couple of weeks ago, and there seems to be a slight strain of awful moralising that blames Hillary Clinton for the fact that her husband was unfaithful. That effectively you, you say, well, she, didn't, she couldn't keep her man. And, and, and so some of this moral outrage about, about adultery, instead of landing where it should land on the unfaithful partner, somehow rebounds on to the wronged woman in, in this case. Are you surprised about that? That is surprising. And I think that has to do more with the actual politics of what's going on between 
Trump and Hillary as opposed to what we normally think of with adultery. Some of the commentary I've been reading on that says uh, those criticisms of her actually are backfiring. With adultery, most people really do blame the cheating spouse and not uh, the spouse who's been cheated upon. But obviously, that's not universally true here, and it is gaining some traction. But if you look at our laws, it, it does go back to this idea of fault, and there's a guilty party and an innocent party. However, one of the defenses to a fault-based adultery is that they're not both innocent. Usually, that means that uh, both of them are cheating. But given the fact that we do have defenses, it could be, well, he cheated, Right, but she caused him to cheat. Oh dear, that's a dead, yeah, that, 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 the dark waters to get into. Finally, we should just uh, give you a chance to write your book. Uh, your book is also reviewed in the TLS this week. It's called "Buying a Bride: An Engaging History of Mail Order Brides." Good pun there. Your thesis seems to be that not all mail order brides are victims, because I think probably in in modern culture you tend to you tend to pity them as women unempowered, forced into a situation which they couldn't control. And, and your view, both historically and, I suppose, in the present day, is that that's not always the case. Certainly that's not always the case. It may not even be primarily the case. I came into the book with that assumption about modern marriage marriages, but I'm also a big uh, history buff, and I um, read a lot about you know our old view of male marriage, and that was pretty, at least especially in America, we really liked male brides. They helped settle the country. So I wanted to figure out why they used to be good and now they're bad. And what I came up with is there's not actually a conflict. They used to be considered good and helpful and the institution was typically good for the women and that's still the case today. How interesting. Marsha, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Two, uh, well, a great piece by you, a nice piece about your book and very kind of you to join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. The politics of this are endlessly... I mean, the Clinton-Trump thing is fascinating to me. Mm. It was put to me by someone who is connected to the Clinton camp that there is a group of women in America, Trump... Because I said, well, no, who, what woman is going to vote for Trump? Mm. And, and he said, well, there's a, there's a theory that there's a certain type of married woman who looks at Hillary and kind of blames her for what Bill did with other women and therefore they can't really forgive her the mm. fact that her husband cheated. It's her failure. Her. Yeah. And I just found that extraordinary mm. if that if that is a could actually be sufficient to create a demographic mm. in, in the it's election. A perversion. I, yeah, I don't know how true that is, but that's that's a theory that's sort of running around though, mm. isn't there? Which is outrageous. I mean, it's outrageous. I mean, the, the, the question of how much it's, misogyny is connected to the opposition to, to mm. Hillary is, I think, an, a very open question. Also outrageous, of course, that someone such as Trump, who's been divorced so many times, yeah. um, could be seen as somehow, uh, you know, uh, voting, you know, to keep marriage yeah, safe, on, on the defending marriage. I mean, that's a hideous uh, proposition. And the whole thing, yeah. Well, we'll probably return. In fact, we definitely will return because we've got a couple of big pieces coming up, including uh, about Hillary Clinton uh, over the next few weeks. So we'll, we'll be discussing that again but from the sordid world of adultery to the peaceful climbs of Beatrix <laughs> Potter nice segue there <laughs> Laura Freeman has taken a lippity lippity stroll through some recent books on Beatrix essentially noting that she remains a literary force to be reckoned with as Laura says her tales still sell like hot radishes in the time taken to introduce this section someone somewhere in the world will have bought one of her books extraordinarily one every 15 seconds is the estimate so what value persists in these out little books for children and what does the enduring popularity say about our perhaps not so cynical modern world well answering those questions and more is laura freeman who joins thea and me now hi laura hello let's start with the basic question which to which you allude in, in the review i think but why do these little tales of animal chaos 
remain popular in a world that you kind of might imagine has has outgrown them? I think because however much the uh, teapots and uh, farmhouses may have changed, they remain very, very funny. And I, I think there's always a bit of jeopardy and then there's generally a happy ending and that remains an enormously satisfying um, um, way of reading a book to a, to a small child. Is it is it that they're just, just the right amount of naughty? It's sort of like breaking rules without actually breaking the system. Uh, I think there's something in that, yes. But I think what she does very cleverly is she sets up situations where everything is very neat and very nice. A lot of her characters are quite fussy and particular. You get the tittle mouses and the tiggy winkles and so on. Uh, and then she introduces a character who's just, who's just not going to have it. They're not going to behave. They are going to run riot. And I think it's very appealing for children, this idea that, you know, you have a gorgeous doll's house in which everything is in its place. You go like Hunker Munker and Tom Thumb do in The Tale of Two Bad Mice and, and you trash it. You know, they carry on like rock stars in a hotel room and throw pillows out of the windows. And I think that sense of mess and, as you say, naughtiness, it, it remains incredibly appealing. And there's a kind of, I mean, I, I, my kids are of exactly the age where, and we do read um, mm. Beatrix Water sometimes, you know, even the start of Peter Rabbit, the, 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 his dad is dead. His dad yeah. is eaten at the beginning of Peter Rabbit. You know, why is your dad not there? Who, Mr. McGregor, puts him in a pie? So there's a little aspect of, and kids love death generally, in my experience. They like a little bit of, of chaos as you, and, and messiness. And, and so there's a little hint of a slightly darker world there without ever being too overpowering, perhaps. Yes, but I think it's never laboured somehow. I, I mean, I think it's extraordinary the way it's such a throwaway line. You know, Mrs. McGregor, you know, oh, sorry, Mrs. Rabbit just says, oh, yes, in a, in a pie by Mrs. McGregor. And it's never alluded to again. It's just, it's just sort of accepted and I think she was very unsoppy and unsentimental so from a very young age and she was fascinated by the natural world but she would you know if if she found a a body of a bird or a small mammal in the garden she would boil it and skin it and reassemble the skeleton with wires if it had come apart a bit and put little glass eyes in Uh, and then later in life in you know when she was a farmer in the second world war and there was rationing she bred rabbits not because she was particularly fond of rabbits but because they were good food for her Pekingese dog so she's not a sort of sentimentalist and you know, endlessly dressing you know rabbits and kittens up in pretty outfits you know there's this there's this sense of sort of the menace of the natural world and the food chain and so on as well so why do we think of her as so because i mean maybe because the drawings are so beautiful and because they they kind of look of their period now that you know if if, if you'd have said to me before reading this piece in this conversation old beatrix potter I probably would reach for words like saccharin and, and, and twee, perhaps even. And, and maybe I'm wrong about that. I, I don't think she's saccharin and twee. It was really interesting going back and rereading her because, of course, I think we often think, oh, yes, I did read Bridget's Potter as a child, but actually you probably didn't. It was probably read to you because you were very little. And going back, I think there's always this little archness her. I think she's sly and teasing and, and, and she does villains as well so that it's never pastel or sugar-coated. You know, yes, you get a very sort of sweet image of, say, you know, Tom Kitten in his blue pantaloon, but then you have the two rats who are determined to bake him into a roly-poly pudding uh, and the rats are ugly and they're menacing and they're in the skirting board and, and you sort of think, well, in my own house there could be one there and there's a slightly uneasy feeling always, you know, behind what, what might be the, the pretty pretty facade how commoditized is she do you think that uh, this sense of either a literary value or her artistic value because the drawings are beautiful how much has that become kind of subsumed by a gigantic commercial industry 
that surrounds her. I mean, who benefits from that, I wonder? Because it, it feels like there is a gigantic commercial, almost Disney-fied apparatus around her. Is that fair, do you think? Oh, yes. And, and if you go into a branch of, say, Waterstones, there'll be a whole Beatrix Potter section in which you can get all your kind of paraphernalia as well as the books. And I, you know, growing up, I had, you know, Peter Rabbit crockery and Peter Rabbit blankets and Mrs. Tiggy Winnipeg quilt. Um, but actually, she endorsed all of that in her own lifetime. She called them her sideshows. Uh, and she was pretty pro-merchandise. I mean, she didn't like it when Harrod started stocking German rabbit dolls because she felt they were quite ugly. So she made her own Peter Rabbit doll out of calico, and then that went into manufacture. She got patents for absolutely everything. She brought out board games and painting by numbers books. So she was pretty eager, actually, to kind of, you know, turn her books into this commercial juggernaut. And, and so you can't really blame the publishers for you know, keeping that going. No, and actually it's kind of admirable on, on her, but do you admire her as a, as a woman? Not only because the, the story you're telling this, which I didn't realise, was that her fiance proposed to her and she she had known him for a while he was a publisher and he died he died a month later before they got married yes and i think she must have been a quite determined person because i don't think she was a great beauty and she didn't receive endless offers of marriage and she got to her mid-30s was still living at home with her parents her mother by all accounts was difficult and then she discovers these three publishing brothers, the Warns, and they want to publish her bunny book, as they called it. And then the youngest brother, Norman Warren, is delightful. And they fall in love. And, you know, she's 39 when she gets engaged. And, and as you say, he gets leukemia and he dies before they can get married. And it must have been the most extraordinary blow to her when independence from her parents was, you know, within her grasp and, and love was within her grasp. You know, she called herself an Anne Elliot and Norman her Captain Wentworth and, and she believed that, you know, like them, you know, she was going to get her late life happy ending. And so she pours herself into her work because that is what enables her to escape from dependence on her parents. And I'm not going to call her a feminist because it seems a slightly anachronistic word to use of someone, you know, of that period. And, and you know, Beatrix is not a proto-Beyonce, but there is this sense in her books of sort of all these single ladies doing rather brilliantly, you know, Mrs. Peter Rabbit and Mrs. Tittlemouth and Mrs. Tiggywinkle. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And uh, I think maybe you make an exception for Jemima Puddle Duck, who's a bit feather-brained. But otherwise, there are women running independent businesses, shops, keeping their families together and doing it all without any sign that there's a man anywhere. I think that's rather impressive. And actually, kind of her career is testament to herself because, I mean, she became, she must have become wealthy halfway through this process when Rabbit was, Pizza Rabbit was selling all over the place. Yes, extremely wealthy. And, and, and she used that wealth to buy lots and lots of land up in the Lake District, having bought a farm there that she loved. I, she then ended up with something like 4,000 acres that she bequeathed on her death to the National Trust. The Lake District is still a gorgeous, unspoilt place that we want to go which is very much thanks to her. How is it? Just, just finally, because uh, we've not talked about it, one of the reasons, this, this is a century and a half since, is, what's the, it's, it's, it's a centenary it's and a half, isn't it, of Bishop yes. Potter? Her birth, yeah. is that right? And there's a new tale at the tale of Kitty in Boots. Uh, this has never previously been seen, is that right? Mm. Well, it was found in the archives of the V&A that have all the Bishop Potter papers, and she wrote it but never illustrated it. Certainly later in her life, when she had the farm, she just simply didn't have the energy anymore to churn out these tales as the Warren firm wanted her to do. Uh, so this is one that was written. She never did anything with. It's now been rediscovered, uh, and Quentin Blake has been commissioned to do the illustrations uh, to go with it. You're not you're not won over by her those illustrations, are you? you? Don't you don't I don't get the feeling you think they were quite right for um, for no, Beatrix Potter. They're not, and, and I want to be fair to Quentin Blake because I think he's splendid uh, and he's wonderful when paired with Roald Dahl because they're both like you know, mischievous schoolboys and they turn everything up upside down and they cause chaos and mayhem and, and they work together but I think I think Blake is in many ways too harem scarum you know his drawings are too much like kind of bird's nests uh, and the beauty of her words and her corresponding illustrations is that they are so taxonomically precise and beautiful down to the last hedgehog prickle pin and whisker and feather um, I just think Blake isn't quite right for her, but then I'm not sure who would have been. How interesting. Well, look, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely piece, Laura. Uh, the front cover of uh, the paper, Rabbit Redux is the headline, and there's a gigantic, beautifully drawn <laughs> picture of Beatrix, uh, of uh, Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter, which it, it demonstrates, I think, what a what a wonderful artist she is. It's, a, it's, very, it's very pretty, very beautiful. Um, so thank you so much for the piece, and thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, it's. Uh, I get the feeling, they call me old Mr Cynical that you have not ever in your life warmed 
to Beatrix Potter? Well, not an she's not, I don't feel know. Like, is she an important part of your growing up? Well, yes, but sort of passively in, in that I think I had I had loads of, of the merchandise as well. I think I think I had an egg cup and saucer. And I had a money box. All, all, of, all of that sort of stuff. But I, I get the feeling that I had that because my grandparents wanted me to have it and I, I absorbed it but I, I can't I can't think that it's made I mean I'd love to go back and have a read as Laura Freeman has for for this piece and and, and see what I don't remember about I, I have read Peter Rabbit to my kids relatively recently mm. and it is interesting and it's I mean it it's slightly old-fashioned it feels yeah. like it's 100 years old mm. but it's it's nice yeah I well I think that's possibly what the problem is for me is I, I always liked you know things like Babette Cole's slimy, hairy books, yeah. and 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 um, I was talking with someone about this just the other day. Um, Janet and Alan um, Albert, oh, but yeah. you know, Funny Bones, yes, and, cops and all and of those things, and Cops well. and Robbers, the kind of slightly more, uh, I don't know, a little bit more sort of edgy. That's probably edgy, are, yeah, are, I suppose edgy. And then edgy. for me, that you know, that was a natural segue then into what's his name, Dennis um, Dennis Potter, is it? Who who did the um, Young Oxford series? You know, of nasty oh, endings yeah, yeah, and yeah. ghost stories. Yeah, so that's what so, you wanted. You wanted yeah. to, and and maybe I was too... a tomboy, so maybe that's got something to do with it. And Laura makes the case, and we'll have to leave this here, but that there is more. The peppery is the word she uses mm. for um, Beatrix Potter. So maybe there is a bit of. It's not fair to say it's Dennis too nice. Pepper. That's it. The is name it? of the Young Oxford. <laughs> Oh, there we go. Editor. Perfect. <laughs> we shall move on. Uh, we, really? Dennis yeah. Pepper, yeah. Not Dennis. Dennis Potter was a really quite... Exactly. A, 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 very different very, man. Very different, very different entirely. Uh, OK, we shall move on. We now live in an age of information. We're surrounded by it, bombarded by it, subsumed by it. Even now, as you're listening to this podcast, you may be glancing at a book or cycling through your phone or have television images mutely prancing before your eyes. Well, first of all... Stop all that and concentrate for a second. Uh, because Paul Duguid has reviewed a book of American information by James Cortada called All the Facts. It focuses on America from the 1870s to the present day, trying to describe and explore the development of an information ecosystem from Facebook to baseball, from radio to church. He wants to show how information and America have grown together and indeed how the growth of the former has helped the dominance of the latter. Uh, Paul Duguid joins Thea and me now. Hi, Paul. Hi. First of all, it's because this is, I think, probably critical to the book and, and your response to it. What does Cortada mean by information? What's he saying is constitutes information? Well, that's one of the trickiest questions and one for which I have, a, in many ways, a great deal of sympathy for him is that it's an enormously, in some ways, it seems like this intuitive and very simple word. And as with many intuitive and very simple <laughs> words, when you stop and think about them, they suddenly collapse in front of you. Um, at times, as his book says, he wants to say information is the same as facts. And so he calls his book All the Facts. And so he's looking somehow at the accumulation of facts, and then he slips from that into knowledge. And we get the question, was well, information then the same as knowledge? And occasionally it just becomes the content of communication. Occasionally it becomes electronic signals on a wire. So from a sort of principled attempt reflected in the title, he suddenly finds it, I think, slipping away from him, as all of us do when we sit and think too hard about information. And is it, what is his thesis? I mean, presumably it's more, but this is probably a critical part of it. There's a lot more ways of facts being shared now. We live in a world where information data, I suppose, is bounced around quickly, more aggressively. We're surrounded, we're bombarded by information, it feels now. Is that the central movement he charts from 1870? To, to now? 
I think that's part of it, and clearly that's part of what he wants to reflect as you know, what his readers' expectations are. And he plays a good deal with uh, Stuart Brand's phrase that information wants to be free. And in some ways, part of the story is that modern technology has freed it up and that technology, a good deal of it, was developed in the United States, and hence it's an American story in many ways. And therefore, uh, what we want to understand is, with this greater freeing and availability and democratic access to information, what does society look like? On the other side, I think, and partly reflecting the fact that he is uh, uh, in, in significant part a business historian, um, he reflects James Benedict's wonderful book, The Control Revolution, which is also somewhat in tension with the notion of freedom, free freedom um, talking about the control of information and the new technology that developed and how society changed once we had now digital, but you know, the early computer and the like, uh, means to control what we call information. So I think, and again, and I, again, some sympathy for this, there's two stories developing. One is the story of greater freedom. The other is the story of greater control. And can we bring those two together into a reasonable um, confrontation? I mean, one thing that strikes me reading this and thinking generally, if, if the world is reducible to facts and to pieces of data, is there a threat here to, to what is to be human, to humanity? Because it kind of feels like this is the triumph of soulless technology. You say at one point, bites over books. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and if everything is just sense data, do we lose something there? Do we lose a sense of soul at some point? Or is that just me being wishy-washy? <laughs> well, I, I'll, if it is, I'll join you in your wishy-washiness, so we, we can go down together on this one. But I, I think there is a sense in which we start to see information being very much defined in terms of the machines and what they can do with information, which starts to make us look more and more like machines, and the things about us that don't work very well for machines start to seem like human deficits or human failings. The more that we become like machines, the more we're validated. The less we are, the more the machines become the dominant thing. And behind that, too, I think there's a certain notion then of determinism, is that we don't have freedom of interpretation. Basically, information controls how machines move, and they should control how we move. Uh, one of the things that's intrigued me is that actually that's a problem that developed in changing notions of information in the 18th century. And a kind of across the century, you see people start to get a little disconcerted at the determinism that is built into it and back away from it. And I think we've almost seen an echo of that now, that there's a huge enthusiasm for how information could change and transform and democratize society. But we suddenly realized that inherent in some of those arguments was, as you say, this very mechanical account, which started to make us look more and more like machines. When we're, when we're talking about the, the machines taking over, technology controlling what information is handed out and how, do you think that Cortada goes, goes far enough in, in, in making the point that you know, technology may be soulless, but it's, it's not aimless, it's not agendaless? Well, I think that he has, um, and I think this partly comes out of his telling the story in uh, a very American and American business context, he, he, he has a very Whiggish view that in the end this is all for the good. 
um, he sees any kind of notion of constraints on information. And looking from, from the perspective I have here in California, this is a lot of finger wagging goes on from America towards Europeans, the, the, the recent decision that um, Germans have passed against Facebook, for instance, is that, you know, all these European governments are constraining information. Qatar, I think, falls in with the Whiggish line that if we just let it take its course, and he makes a very evolutionary argument, it's a, he sees information having a biography at times, um, it'll, information will be allowed to grow up and all will turn out well. Mm, the freer, um, the, freer so, the information, the freer we will be. It's a very, the freer a, a very we will American be. narrative. And of course, if you make you know, us and information machines part of a sort of parallel narrative, then it just does seem that more information will be good for us. And it allows you to overlook to leave out a lot of questions about politics and society. Mm. So he'd support WikiLeaks then, you think, this notion, this kind of absurd notion that has grown up out of WikiLeaks that all information can be shared and if it can be shared, it should be shared, Mm. which ignores human agency to, to protect things, to protect things like people's bank details or sexuality or or people's um, lives in a part of the world where if information is known, you can be persecuted or punished. Right. And, and I think that that's, that's exactly, I mean, I, I don't think he takes that on directly. Certainly you can see those arguments elsewhere. But I think implicit in his argument, um, and he turns a rather blind eye to those questions, um, is an assumption that with the emancipation of information comes the emancipation of the human. And questions like uh, the ones that come up around WikiLeaks, um, that in general there are institutional structures um, that perhaps we at times have to pay attention to. I mean, there are some institutions, academic institutions in particular, that he denounces, and there are others like corporate institutions, which he's a great fan of, which he, he doesn't really raise for questioning, he takes for granted. But so, so both the sort of human and the institutional and the social tend to be rather missing from this argument. So in his, his account, the day of, of experts, as, as it were, are sort of numbered? Well, I think, I mean, that, that's a very interesting question. Um, again, I think his argument draws quite a lot on the, the well-known work of, of Daniel Bell, the journalist turned academic, who I think got himself caught in something of a conundrum of whether what this led to was the the, the vision you describe, or whether it actually leads to a society of technocrats, that um, in the end there are those who have greater access, greater control, and greater understanding of the information infrastructure. And implicitly or explicitly, we will have to bow down to them. How about the theory, though, that if the automation increases, if that sort of information in in terms of data in a sort of neutral state is shared more easily and technology takes over more of it, uh, ultimately that will leave us more spare time for pursuing uh, the pleasures of the soul because the machines will be doing more of the more of the day to day stuff. Is that is that implausible, do you think? I, I think, I mean, that, that's an argument that goes, I mean, you know, has, has many antecedents and Keynes was famously sort of made it and was then poo-pooed by later economists. And of course, what some of the, what people are asking now is, is it really true that Uber is giving taxi drivers more time to uh, read Plato or are they um, uh, somewhat suffering penniless and do we have to ask questions about how we're going to develop a society in which this this happens. I mean, I think 
some of the assumptions, and, and here I wouldn't blame Cortada alone, about robotics um, and their ability to replace humans are probably overstated. But for sure, that seems to me to be the kind of political, social argument that we need to have. And a lot of arguments about information and its determined future seem to say, just leave those out of the way. We have no place for those. Let's focus on information. Uh, we'll have to leave it here, Paul, but I'll just refer to one thing which terrified me in your review. Uh, you talked about nanobots being injected into the blood <laughs> to alter the brain at the level of the neuron. Thus, you say, will future students acquire Shakespeare? Paul, tell me that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got, I've got my fingers tightly crossed. But it is a wonderful notion of what both reading Shakespeare is all about, and all it is is getting this information signal into our brain. So the quickest way to do it, and you don't want those dusty books and the pleasure of reading aloud or of hearing the verse. And of course, then you say, well, and all Shakespeare is, of course, is basically is, is facts. Everything else you don't need. And so let's get that information into the head. And I, I do think that the, the notion of, I mean, people look to those of us who teach with a certain terror anyway, that the idea that my job in the future will be injecting names nanobots into people's bloodstream. What <laughs> wide eyes say to trust me, my boy, trust me, is something that we all ought to think about. Uh, Paul, thank you. Petrifying. Paul, yeah, but kind of reassuring then at the end as well, Paul. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for this. It's a, it's a really interesting piece about, uh, like you say, it's the future of information. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's easy to sort of head towards a dystopia in your mind about it this. It is, yeah. Uh, but maybe there is a benefit if more... I mean, it's easy to say the starting position is the more the information is shareable, mm. the closer we are connected. You end up with globalisation, you end up with people who are not bound by geography, they can get closer together, that must be a good thing. Mm. But then the downsides sort of loom, don't they? And yeah, and I think Paul, um, Paul does a, a very good job of tracing this through the piece. There does seem to be this constant elision between elision of volume and value um yeah. and you know so you you may inject have shakespeare injected into you therefore it's there that doesn't necessarily and you know umpteen other books that doesn't mean that you're then able to make value judgments and yeah. call on them in the right way at the right time and it's quantity affects quality yeah uh, is that lenin who said that i think i think that is a uh, that, that's the, the the notion that we we become subsumed by all this stuff and therefore actually we can't work out what's important what isn't exactly and so you know availability if it's all about all of the knowledge being available to everyone that also doesn't mean that it's accessible by everyone yeah or you know i mean it may be in 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 practical terms but not in intellectual terms or because people or, there's no one to help people the, exactly yeah. so the idea of you know someone like michael gove saying oh we're all tired of experts now let's not go <laughs> i mean we, we could do another podcast just criticizing michael gove maybe that's another idea so we're going to do a we're going to do we'll get him on Clint, the show and <laughs> yeah, now working at the times we're going to do clinton and we'll do we won't do michael gove i promise you that is almost all <laughs> almost all we have time for this week many thanks to Thayer, of course to marcia zug to laura freeman and paul Duguid. please do subscribe to this podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts we will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. Talking of which, next week we will have two podcasts. Lit crit guru Michael Keynes will interview Rose Tremaine about her new novel and her 40 years as a published author. That podcast will be available hopefully on Monday. Check that out. But then we, Thea and I, return next Thursday 
as normal. We haven't quite worked out, have we, what, what we're going to talk about? Philosophy we're going to be talking yes, about. Yes, philosophy in its, in its many forms in and it, iterations. And yeah, we're ready for that. We're going to be doing some serious preparation <laughs> over the next <laughs> few days to be able to do that. Tim Crane, our philosophy editor, will join us to explain everything and there'll be some other stuff as well. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've discussed today, plus Faye Hamill on the author of Anne of Green Gables, Charlotte Jones on children's fantasy literature, Jim Campbell on that angry Ian Hamilton Finlay, more anon Nancy Campbell no relation on the man who designed the London underground typography which is more interesting than it sounds I promise you Paul Collier on the colossal tragedy of the Euro Robert Irwin on an exhibition about the 60s revolution Miranda France on fictional responses to the Spanish Civil War and Sarah Jelani on the story of Iranian film you can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions you can also now Read our daily online articles on subjects like the perception of Donald Trump, the Marxism of Jeremy Corbyn and whether musicals like Hamilton should be accorded the same respect as operas. Hear, hear, say I. From next week, we'll also be publishing literary Q&As with the biggest names in literature and ideas, starting with Hilary Mantel. And we have a newsletter. And we have a newsletter. <laughs> God, this is, yeah, we'll, we'll keep going. But yeah, we can keep up to date with what we're doing. You sign up to our weekly newsletter. You can go onto our website, sign up. Once a week, you'll get an email for us with all of what's going on at the TLS. And you can follow us on Twitter and you can follow it like us on Facebook I told if you there's too, much in, there's too much information <laughs> too, much information. <laughs> too much information is the theme and also the manner of this podcast so we're going to leave you now with Bob Potts reading Gift by Ian Hamilton Finley first published in the TLS in 1960 until next time goodbye Gift how silly and how dear how very dear to send a dehydrated porcupine by letter post with love it did appear that it was such a gift, but more a sign of love from her I love, that girl of mine. I did not think it too exceptional, acceptance being one part of being in love, and yet I thought it strange, for you could call it strange to send a dried-up porcupine with love. My dear, I thought, oh darling mine and stroked with love its quills so soft and fine, at which I saw it was not animal, but vegetable. Yes, it was vegetable, the prickly part of some old hoary pine she had detached and sent me. Plus a line there, scribbled in her dear and silly scrawl, I hope it did not prick you, dearest mine. I did not mean you to be hurt at all. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.